This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Good morning, Leela. Good morning, Priya. It's good to be back in the studio. Yeah, uh, it's so, I love being in here. Um, it just does not compare to the year year or so of uh, broadcasting from home. I can't believe that when I started radio, I started just completely remotely. Um, the studio is the best. Anyway. Yeah, I actually had no idea. You panel like you were born at the panel. <laughs> I was. I was, uh, actually, my mother was a panel. Um <laughs> So today, as usual, we have a packed show and we're doing a public housing special show today in the wake of, well, gosh, it's the Allen government now, huh? The Allen government's uh, plan? I guess it was introduced under the Andrews government um, of the Victoria's housing statement, which includes significantly the uh, planned demolition and redevelopment of all 44 public housing towers in Melbourne. Um, Obviously, this has sent shockwaves throughout the community, and so we're going to be focusing on that in today's show. So earlier this week, uh, Spike and I visited the Hoddle Street public housing estate in Collingwood, and we spoke with resident Sim, who's been living in one of the estates for seven years. And in this interview, Sim's going to reflect on last week's announcement by the Victorian state government about the demolition and redevelopment plan and about how the announcement was delivered to residents and the distress and uncertainty that it's caused. Yep. And last week, we caught up with Izzy Brown, a public housing walk-up resident, a local community organiser and artist, to talk about the launch of the Resident Frequency Recording Studio out of the Hoddle Street Public Housing Towers Community Centre. We heard from Izzy prior to the announcement that the towers are to be quote-unquote redeveloped. So today we'll be speaking with her again about what is what this announcement means for various communities and local culture at the estate. And then also on Tuesday this week, Spike and I caught up with Christopher Sprake, who's a community development worker at the Wellington, which is a community organization that services the Wellington Street Public Housing Tower in Collingwood. And Chris was able to briefly speak about the public housing redevelopment announcement from a community worker perspective, noting the lack of information provided to both residents and workers by the Victorian government either before or immediately after the statement was made public. And at about 7.45, Louisa Bassini, Acting Director of Legal Practice at Inner Melbourne Community Legal, joins us to speak about the implications of the Victorian Government's public housing tower redevelopment plan from a community legal sector perspective and shares some information about the rights of public tenants. Inner Melbourne Community Legal is the service that represents clients on the north on the North Melbourne, Flemington, Kensington and Carlton public housing estates. Louisa previously represented clients being relocated from the Abbotsford Street and Walker Street estates as part of the public housing renewal program and has worked on housing and tenants rights issues for about 15 years. 
And then finally, Professor Libby Porter and Dr. David Kelly, my colleagues and housing researchers based at RMIT's Center for Urban Research, join us in the station to situate this public housing tower redevelopment plan within a longer history of scholarship and independent evaluations of previous processes of public housing renewal in Melbourne, presenting a critical analysis of this process and its impact on public housing estate communities, the rollback of government provision of housing, and the ripple effects that this has in the broader landscape of tenancy within the state. And uh, Libby, Dave, myself, and our colleagues, Dr. Iris Levin, Dr. Liam Davies, and Professor Kate Shaw published an explainer breaking down last week's Victorian housing statement. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes. But it looks to be a packed show as always. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. VCR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 28th of September. Listeners, please be advised the following headlines contain details that may be distressing for some listeners. Victoria's peak medical bodies and unions are calling on the Victorian government to urgently open a supervised injecting room in Melbourne City. The open letter released this week, co-signed by 18 organisations including the Australian Medical Association Victoria, and CoHealth, said unsafe injecting has worsened in the city of Melbourne. Recently resigned Premier Daniel Andrews announced three years ago that his government would set up a second injecting room in the city, following the success of a facility in North Richmond. However, a timeline has still not been established, with the government claiming that they are, quote, taking the time to get it right. Unquote, amongst what advocates say is urgent need. More than 40 people have died from a drug overdose in the past three years in Melbourne City, and there have been more than a thousand heroin related ambulance call outs. In other news this week, whistleblowers have revealed unlawful and severe mistreatment of children as part of a therapy program funded by the National Disability Insurance Scheme. As part of controversial practices, Children with autism and intellectual disabilities were pinned to the ground face down, at times by up to six workers at Irabina Autism Services in Melbourne. Whistleblowers reported that children aged between 10 and 14 were part of the program, which also involved children spending hours with staff in small, padded, windowless rooms. A report into the program had previously found the practices used would be unlawful and in breach of the state's human rights charter. 
Arabin staff claim that programs were always conducted, quote, with the full knowledge, endorsement, oversight, supervision and funding of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, end quote. Finally, in headlines, following last week's announcement about the Victorian government's plans to demolish public housing towers across Melbourne, Leading urban planning academics have released a joint paper that warns dislocating low-income communities is known to cause serious harm and even death. Academics from RMIT's Centre for Urban Research quickly released a joint paper following the announcement, arguing that the government had failed to justify its claim that the towers, which are home to some 10,000 people, are no longer fit for purpose. Some residents reported learning they would be evicted from their homes after being approached by the media last week. Following the state government's public announcement, following the state government's public announcement, the experts say the new policy will exacerbate the, ha- the housing crisis in the short term, with hundreds of public housing dwellings being destroyed and tight-knit communities pulled apart before a lengthy rebuild program provides new housing. Now, before we wrap with the headlines, just a couple of things to follow up those first two. For the first headline, a reminder that Harm Reduction Victoria runs opioid overdose recognize and response using naloxone training on the first of each month in this year, 2023, at 4.30 p.m. on Zoom. So you can head to hrvic.org.au forward slash training to find out information about that. And also with our second headline, you can always make a report to the National Disability Abuse and Neglect Hotline on 1-800-880-052. That's 1-800-880-052 to report concerns about neglect and abuse of people with disability, especially in uh, facilities like we've discussed. Now, those have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 28th of September, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Disabled people are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay with spending money on the supports that we need. There's more than 400,000 people who should be on the DSP, but are on Job Seeker instead. I've got a life to live. I've got commitment. Like everybody else in society. The only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are never going to be our saviour. If everyone was the same, it would be a born old world we live in. We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Now, earlier this week, Spike and I visited the Hoddle Street public housing estate in Collingwood, and we spoke with resident Sim, who's been living in the estate for seven years. In this interview, Sim reflects on last week's announcement by the Victorian state government that all 44 public housing towers in the greater Melbourne area are slated for demolition and redevelopment in the coming decades. Sim spoke with us about how the announcement was delivered to residents and discussed the stress and uncertainty that this has caused. Hi, so we're here at the Hoddle Street Street, um, Towers, public housing towers, and 
we're speaking to Sim about how he feels about how he feels about the news that the towers are going to be knocked down. How are you going, Sim? I'm going quite well at the moment. Um, I was very surprised to hear that it was going to happen. Um, we got a letter the day before it was announced that the um, that the, the majority or all of the towers are going to be taken down and we're going to be rehoused somewhere. They didn't tell us where, which is a bit of a concern because, you know, I sort of like where I am at the moment. I've got used to it. I've been here for uh, seven, eight years now. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, it was just a bit weird. It was like there was no no build-up or anything to it. It was just all of a sudden, bam, like, yep, we're going to start moving you out. But then I thought, it's going to take years. And it's going to have to take years to rehouse all these people and build us new, ho new homes and things. But then where are we going to be housed? That's my main concern. So there's been no consultation. That was the first message you got was last week? Um, yeah, middle of last week, I think. Um, we got a thing put put under a door, and it said that um, yeah, where the 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 housing commission were going to um, start to take down the the, the high rises and rehouses. So you said you've been here seven years. Do you feel how do you like it here? And oh, do you do you feel that there's a sense of community here? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I just um have finished uh, building a um. A recording studio in the in the building next door, and we um we had a uh, an opening of that of that studio just the other night, and you know there were bands playing, and there's you know a, a multiple of of uh, ethnic varieties of people, you know, just being there, and like it's, it's yeah, it's definitely a community. That that's the one thing I noticed when I got here after being here for maybe a couple of years. I noticed the, the sense of community that was really strong. So that sounds like it's really important to you, Sim. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, other than that, I would be just dad man with with my daughter. So so it's really nice to have that, you know, that outlet and to have that, you know, somewhere to go. That's the neighbourhood house, and yeah, it's really positive. So do you feel, how, how does it feel not being consulted and that, that could happen, that you, these places will knock down? How, how does it make you feel? Well, first off, I started just looking around at my house and going, oh, geez, I've got so much stuff. How am I, I going to move? Like, are they going to help me move? Are they going to, how is it going to, you know, like um, function in an in a orderly way or something? You know, I just, I couldn't see it happening and, but then they said there was like there was like 44 buildings that were going to be taken down. And I thought it's just going to take ages, and and no one's going to know when their time's up, or you know, like so. Do I get a knock on the door one day and say, okay, you got two weeks to move, or like they've given us no no reference to to how it's going to happen, or or anything like that, you know. Wow, that must make you feel insecure. Um, a little bit, but because of the the magnitude of the of what's happening, um, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. But I've got no idea when it's going to happen. You know, um, I was speaking to some guy in the lift just then, and he said that apparently they're starting with Flemington flats. 
but I don't know when they're going to get to these ones and I've got no idea where they're going to rehouse me and and here is like I'm right next door to Collingwood College it's where my daughter's going to go to high school so it's quite ideal but if I get housed you know out in the suburbs somewhere then that really puts us off so yeah tell us a bit more about where, where we are here in, in Collingwood tell us a bit more about the place um it's a good place it's um it's it's a funny place it's it's full of it's full of crazy characters um you know you never you never um short of people screaming in the middle of the night and stuff like that but um but you get used to that and it doesn't you know cause you any harm but um but yeah no it's a, it's a beautiful place like it really is it's a it's a nice place it's central it's like you know just sort of you know in the suburbs so um I don't know, it's sort of ideal for me. And I can't imagine moving out to the outer suburbs because I'd be, I'd be removed from, um, you know, like the, we've got the trains and we've got the trams and we've got, like, you know, public transport quite close because I don't have a car. Yeah. So it's very easy to get around and take, her, take my daughter to school and stuff because she goes to school in Northcote. And that's really easy to do that. But if I was in a suburb like away from a, a train station or a, a you know some place where I could easily get her to school and back it would be quite difficult so the location where you're situated is really important to to continue like I guess stability for yourself and your daughter absolutely yeah 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 that's one of the, that's one of the main reasons I, I, I accepted the place was you know well I accepted it straight off I was thought like wow this is you know a great I've got a I've got a flat to myself, you know. I've never had that before. So it was awesome. And now I've been here seven years, I feel like I'm just like part of the community and and I know everyone here, everyone knows me. So it would be weird to move to somewhere where I didn't know anyone. That would be strange. So how how did it feel when you first got the place? Oh, like, it's, you know, like getting. Was it? Were you homeless before you got this place? Yeah, I was. I was, I was squatting or homeless. Yep. Um, when I got the place, it was funny. The, my housing worker, he, um, he, he, I had my um, mail was being sent to um, Inner Space, and um, he uh, rang me and said, oh, "I've got this letter, and I think it's probably pretty important. It's from the Housing Commission, and um, apparently you're given three days to reply." Yeah. And um, and so he said, you probably should, you know, come in here and check this letter out. And so I did. And next thing, ne- next day, they brought me here and showed me the place. And I was stoked. It was a brand new flat. As I said, I've never had my own place before. So other than squats, um, yeah, it was great. I loved it. So one of the one of the reasons they're saying they're knocking the places down is that they can't be refurbished. How do you feel about the condition of the, of the towers? There's nothing wrong with them, other than the lifts not working sometimes. There's nothing wrong with them. Like honestly, they're yeah, like structurally, they're they're sound. Um, I yeah, I I can't see any reason why they would be taking them down. Have you ever had any maintenance issues in your flat that you've called to get support for and and, and did you know did they respond when you asked for mate you know like you needed something fixed? 
Yeah, I have, but they haven't responded very uh, or at all. So, I, as far as my um, my stove goes, I've got one one hot plate that works out of the four, and the oven works. But if I turn on another hot plate, then the um, the power switch gets gets turned off. So, so I've just got one at a time. Yeah, that that makes me wonder, Sim, about you know when they talk about uh, when, when when governments talked about an inability to keep the places going to refurbish them. Um, whether there's a question about better maintenance and actually listening to people's concerns, do you think that would be? like a, a helpful direction to go in before this idea of, of knocking things down. I know a lot of people that have um, have had problems with certain amenities and they don't get fixed and and yeah I think that if they, if they, if they, if they just um, put more effort into um, just doing minor minor things to the actual you know single apartments and stuff then there would be no need to to knock them down or anything like that like they're perfectly fine they're they're in good condition yeah because I think that's something that we were really interested in is um, looking at you know why government is now saying that there are concerns about quality and maintenance and then going back and asking the question well who was responsible for the maintenance in the first place I am my original thought was that um, it was part of um, the gentrification and they just didn't want the, these big ugly buildings, you know, in the way they are nicer buildings that are being built around, you know. And, and I, I assume that, you know, if, if these buildings do get torn down, then there's just going to be yuppie apartments built in their place. So it doesn't really make any sense, you know. And, and where are they going to put us? Like, how are they going to build... That many are they going to build apartments or are they going to build? I, I, like we've, we've been given no no information on that whatsoever. How does it feel when they've made an announcement like that without any any follow up, like as to when it's going to happen, where you're going to go? Like, how does that affect your family, like yourself and your daughter? Um, the only security that I have with it is that. There's so many that it's, it has to take a while, you know. But then at the same time, I don't know if you know if my flat's going to, if my apartment's going to be, you know, if my building's going to be next, or or like we've got we've had no information on that. So that's a, like you know, if they gave us a timeline or something like that, you know, you, you could get ready for it or something. You can prepare. Yeah, yeah. but they've, they've they've done nothing like that. Because one one of the things that one of the options for people, I, th- I guess, from um, their plan is to provide people with community housing, which will affect how much rent you pay. So how 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 easy or difficult is it to pay rent right now? Um, at the moment, it's not too bad because you know they just take it out of my out of my pension, but um, they've given me no ind- indication of, of what it will be like, you know, or how much I'll have to pay in these new. Because apparently they were saying they were going to. Um, make apartments that were part um, social housing and part, um, you know, uh, normal people housing. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that the right word to say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I've got no idea how that will change. So what's, what's your understanding what social housing is? 
Uh, my understanding is um, I get a percentage taken out of my of my pay of the, from the government because I'm a, I'm a single parent, and that's that's fine with me. That's 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 cool. But um, but I don't know what the future holds because they haven't told us anything really. Will, will you move? Will you stay here till it till whatever happens happens? And will you accept another place or will you? Yeah. What, what do you think you'll do? I'll stay here till I'm told to move. Yeah. I don't have any. I don't have. I don't have anywhere else to go. If they say you um you're going to be moving to we, we've got we found a place for you in Bendigo, for example, would you be happy? No, no. My daughter goes to school in Melbourne, and yeah. I can't move to I can't move to Bendigo. I have her over half the week. I have her like five days of the week. So no, I can't. I can't move out of Melbourne. I wanted to ask about. You know, in terms of the information you've been given, you mentioned it was pretty limited. There's no timeline, that kind of thing. Did they say anything about, you know, when redevelopment occurs? Did they say anything about moving back? No, nothing at all. No, they said that they would um, help us move and it would be no inconvenience to us. But that's, that's just bullshit because... Moving is a, is an inconvenience, like you know. So, and if they're not going to, if I'm not going to be uh, moved into this area, then you know my 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 daughter's going to go to high school here. So to move to move, I don't know anywhere like say Bendigo or it's just out of the question. Yeah, like you want to keep your place. Yeah. And so if you decide that you don't want to go to where they're offering, what happens to your place in, in, the, in the program or, you know, in the public housing thing? I've got no idea. I've got, that's what they're not telling us. They're not, you know, then they need to be telling us, like, you know, if you're taken away from this spot, you're going to be placed in this spot, you know, or something like that. But it's just not... It's just not the way they're doing it. So the info that was put underneath your door last week, was that the first that you've heard of it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and that was like the night before they um, they brought it out on the, on the news. So I think they sort of went around quickly and just, you know, stuffed it under there so that, you know, we got a, a step. Or they, or they couldn't say, oh, you weren't told beforehand, you know. But, but I've seen so many, like, of those letters, like, still underneath people's people's doors that haven't got them yet even so they don't even know about it yet have you had the chance to talk to any of your neighbors about how they're feeling about it no i haven't yet no sorry i was just going to say no one's called a public a meeting amongst you guys apparently there is um there is going to be a meeting either to uh what's today tuesday Tuesday. oh yeah i think today at um on wellington street there's going to be a public meeting I don't, I don't know about public meetings. They sort of tell you what they want you to hear and, yeah, set, I don't know. Set up by the tenants or by the state government? No, by the Housing Commission, oh, I think. Housing yeah, okay. yeah. And so on the, you know, limited information that you got as well, did you find out when you would get any more information or they just they just dropped it there and they said, this is the announcement? No, that was it. They just told us that we were going to be moved at some time. Some, yeah, they're going to take down the towers and we're going to be moved and rehoused. How do you feel about the government's plan, like, generally to, to move you from, to knock these down? 
How do you feel? Like, do you think they need to be knocked down? No, I don't feel they need to be knocked down at all. Like, um, sure, they they might be an eyesore to the to the general public, but um, no, they're fine. Like, they they work really well, and and especially my floor, it's like um, it's so multicultural, and it's where everyone gets along, and it's feels really communal and we've got the neighborhood house next door which provides so much you know they've got like food nights and and band nights and you know as I said we, we, we built a studio there so to think that you know we went we spent all this money building a studio and then they're just gonna go knock it down like we built the studio so people can you know the community can come in and um, record music and you know make music and do their stuff and then what they're just going to tear it down it just doesn't make any sense to no, me it doesn't it makes no sense and i guess that you know there's creating of that creating those memories and that good feeling that's a sense of community you just can't transplant that yeah mm. no you can't no and, and I, i've met people here that i would never have met anywhere else and i'm now good friends with these people you know they they're almost like family you know we get together and it's just it's it's a great night you know we party on and but um yeah I don't know it's just it seems like a it seems like a lot of waste of money really a lot of taxpayers money being wasted whereas these buildings they don't need maybe they could do with a bit of you know up up repair or something you know but but to be torn down and and to, and and what are they going to they, they're going to build new houses for us are they building some other places or they said that we'll be rehoused that's all it says. Yeah. yeah, so really open to interpretation then. Yeah. Ms. Holder, do you want to say anything? Is there anything you wanted to add? Like, have you been thinking about this? A little bit. I don't want to move. Sweetie. So we just heard uh, Spike and Priya, who visited the Hoddle Street public housing estate earlier this week and spoke with resident Sim, who has been living in one of the estates for seven years. In this interview, Sim reflects on last week's announcement by the Victorian State Government that all 44 public housing towers in the Greater Melbourne area are slated for demolition and redevelopment in the coming decades. Sim spoke about how the announcement was delivered to residents and discusses the stress and uncertainty that this has caused. Now, last week, we also caught up with Izzy Brown, who's a public housing walk-up resident, local community organiser and artist, to talk about the launch of the Resident Frequency Recording Studio out of the Hoddle Street Public Housing Towers Community Centre. And we heard from Izzy prior to the announcement that the towers are to be redeveloped. So today, we're going to be speaking with her again about what this announcement means for various communities and local culture at the estate. Good morning, Izzy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Izzy. Hello, yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us yeah. this morning. Um, now, I, it's, it's, there's been a bit of, you know, collective whiplash about the announcement. And I know, um, you know, so much work went into, um, you know, into developing uh, resident frequency. And Sim mentioned that as well in the interview that we just played. Um, so after all of the work that you've done with the local community on the estate, how did you feel when you heard the announcement about this planned demolition? Um, I have to say I felt very dubious. It sounded like, well, it certainly came out of the blue. Mm. I don't think anyone saw it coming, per se. And, I, you 
make the door a little Yeah. <laughs> Guarantee housing. And I think for a lot of people, especially long-term residents on the estate, it's probably a pretty scary, you know, mm. thing. You know, with a lot of unknowns, you know, a lot of unknowns. No one knows where they'll end up. And you know, it will, will be, yeah, breaking up communities. Yeah. And, I mean, people have lived on you know, these estates their whole lives. There are generations of, of folks living in the towers. And I can imagine that a forced relocation would have a massive impact on people. But, I mean, in terms of the sort of, like, community cultural work that you've been doing for so long at, um, you know, at the towers, I'm wondering, um, have you heard much from people uh, who you're doing this sort of, like, amazing grassroots work with about how they felt about the announcement? Um, I haven't had, it's been school holidays, so we've mm. been away, so I haven't managed to touch base with people much about it. But um, from what I have heard, especially elderly neighbours and things, they're, they're really concerned. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah, people that have lived here their, their whole lives, they're really, yeah, yeah, I think it is like a, yeah, a really healthy mistrust of, of the government and like we've been talking to the Department of Housing, you know, about the underground, about the developments, about fixing parks, about doing stuff, and it was never mentioned, like not even touched upon. It was like so out of the blue. A bit like the big build as well. Mm. You know, they're just constantly throwing these announcements at us without any consultation, and yeah, it certainly doesn't help create stability <laughs> in the in the an already kind of unstable environment. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And I mean, you mentioned that lack of consultation there and the amount of energy that's gone in from the community to try and engage with government who, you know, to, to try and get some investment in local community projects. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Like, it, has there yeah. been any support from state government to build local community projects? And then um, what does that kind of relationship or how is that relationship uh, impacted or changed or, I don't know, stays the same through yeah. the, this kind of announcement? Well, like, I think like in terms of, like, council and stuff like that, like, people in the community and the, and the Netwood House, anyway, work very closely with, like, City of Yarra um, in terms of, like, you know, getting grants and things like that to run youth programs and art programs and, and stuff. But in... Um, and even just even like a group called CHIAC that I'm a part of, which is like residents and artists from the estate that meet with the Department of Housing and the council and other key players to like, you know, work towards different, you know, community activities and, and events and things like that. And, yeah, I think it's just bizarre that it's very top-down, you know what mm. I mean? Like, even though we're in communication and trying to, like, navigate all these things, um, yeah, none of that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's all it's all coming from the top. There's definitely nothing, no communication. Not, they're definitely not communicating with people down here. Even with people that are really on the pulse. You know, we're not we're not hearing anything anything about it. Yeah, totally. I feel like this is this is a similar situation across multiple tower estates where um, residents have been talking about how they're talking to the department, um, like DFFH and Homes Victoria, about particular issues on the estates or like trying to um, advocate for more funding to come into community projects or um, advocate on 
behalf of themselves around maintenance issues. And so it's not like those lines of communication weren't open in various selective ways. And yet, um, as you said, this whole thing just gets dropped in people's laps as a big surprise. And I don't remember even the big bill. They turned up at the neighborhood house with like all the media and the cameras saying they'll make this great announcement and could all people from the estate come and stand around. And then, yeah, just told us they were like closing the underground car park, which was our kind of art space, performance space, and building two more towers on like the green zones in the estate. And I was like, wow, like, you know, we're literally hearing this. We're hearing it from like from the media announcement, like, no one at Lucy is actually hearing it before. <laughs> yeah. And we're being used, you know, to promote that at the same time. It's like outrageous. Yeah, it's so appalling and uncaring. Mm. I mean, is, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Um, well, you know, I think that, you know, that like potentially, especially with that, that last one, you know, there were demonstrations. We did go to, um, you know, politicians' offices. There was, like, community meetings and protests and stuff that happened. So the government better watch out because the community is probably, you know, once we kind of get more to the bottom of this, you know, going to get organised and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a reaction. So, yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, 100%. Thanks so much, Izzy. Take care. And that was Izzy Brown, a public housing walk-up resident, local community organizer and artist who spoke with us last week about the launch of the resident frequency recording studio out of the Hoddle Street Public Housing Towers Community Center. And when we had had that conversation initially, we heard from Izzy prior to the announcement that the towers were going to be redeveloped. So today we heard from her about what the announcement means for various communities and local culture at the estate and how incongruous uh, communication has been in terms of hearing some very selective bits and pieces around, uh, you know, engaging with communities in relation to specific concerns, but then all of a sudden having this announcement sprung on communities, even though those lines of communication were already open in other avenues. No consultation, really massive concerns about the impacts that this is going to have on the communities. And you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
All right, and we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're bringing you a second conversation that Spike and I had on Tuesday, where we caught up with Christopher Sprake, who's a community development worker at the Wellington, which is a community organization that services the Wellington Street Public Housing Tower. And Chris was very generous with his time and able to briefly speak about the public housing redevelopment announcement from the perspective of a community worker and noted the lack of information provided both to residents and to workers by the Victorian government either before or immediately after the Victoria's housing statement was made public. All right. So we are at the Wellington in Collingwood and I'm here with Chris. Chris, would you mind just introducing yourself briefly? Sure, my name's Christopher Sprake. Uh, I'm the manager here at the Wellington. Uh, I'm a community development worker. I've worked on uh, public housing estates uh, in Richmond and Collingwood for uh, over 16 years. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, we thought that we would just uh, try and grab you quickly to ask about the announcement uh, of the redevelopment of the 44 public housing towers that, you know, hit the headlines last week and we understand that residents in the public housing towers got very little advance notice so we just thought we would get an in the moment kind of reflection on how that's reverberated through the community that you've been working with. Uh, Yeah there was no um, there was no warning uh, there was no consultation that we're aware of Um, the announcement came um, as very much a surprise. Uh, It's created a high level of anxiety among the community. Even though we're being told that the development is only going to roll out over the next uh, 15 to 20 years, obviously the first question that comes up for everyone is, um, am I going to have to move out of my home? Uh, Now, I guess the government is saying that they want to redevelop these housing towers as fit for purpose, which I think is a very valid Um, statement. I think uh, people deserve better than homes that are now 70 years old. Um, But in the meantime, where do do people go? Are they going to be moved out of their communities that support them? Uh, And that's one of the big questions here, that uh, we provide food, um, allied health services and uh, community development, so uh, activities and space for people to build community. And people are asking those questions. If I'm um, relocated um, an hour's drive away, even if it's in the time that the building is happening, what happens to my community? What happens to my my support services? Um, So there's definitely anxiety around that. Um, uh, I think um, as the government tries to go through this, they're going to have to um, uh, address those those issues um, and certainly put in more than a pamphlet drop uh, to assuage people's fears. Yeah, absolutely. And as a, I guess, community service provider that is directly in the proximity of some of the tower estates and, you know, serves those communities, were you provided with any advance notice or, you know, have you been provided with anything from from Homes Victoria? Because obviously people are coming to you and asking questions, but, um, you know, I, I was curious about that side as well. Uh, so I had a regional uh, manager drop in the day of the announcement. They found out that day and they provided us with some uh, pamphlet material and that is about as much uh, as I can say on the record um, and just that the development times are a huge issue. Yeah, absolutely, and appreciate sensitivities around that. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add about the, the statement and how it's kind of impacted the community at this stage and um, any other concerns that people have raised? Uh, I think there really has to be consultation about what appropriate housing is going to look like and uh, 
if that is going to be public or if it's going to be what we now call social, uh, which is different to public, uh, different in the way that um, it costs for the community to stay where they've been living. Um, and also I think there's questions around um, who owns the land. Uh, I think that's one of the big ones because if you're talking about the future of public housing and there's a shift in the ownership of the land, uh, what is the long-term outlook? So if, if you're a young parent living in um, public housing and uh, you've got a couple of kids and you're thinking, OK, I want to be here probably for the next 20 years, um, am I going to be living in public housing? Am I going to be moved into social housing? Am I going to have to move away from my community to be able to afford public housing? Th these are the kind of questions that are coming up and I think um, more has to be done by the government to assuage those, those issues. So I, I'm a public housing tenant myself and I know that there's a lot of people that live in public housing that have been homeless and had you know, different sorts of backgrounds and you said you're part of a community development program. How important is community to the people that are here right now and how difficult would it be to, to, to get to produce what, you're, what, you've, what you've got here somewhere else? Uh, it takes a long time and a lot of investment. Uh, so as I said, I've, I've been around Richmond and Collingwood for 16 years now. Um, that relationship building um, really holds the key to people being involved in community development. Um, so at the moment, I work for a certain organisation. People don't come to uh, this organisation because they're looking uh, for the services. They come because they've met myself or one of my staff and built that relationship over a long time. They know that they can trust it. They can come into an environment of trust. They can um, be respected for the things that they need. Even when they're in a time of crisis, uh, they know that people will listen, make time for them. Um, and it, it requires a large investment. And I don't, um, I don't know how you do that from scratch um, that, that's a big, I think that's a big question. Um, you take people out of their homes. Uh, often, even the newer um, public housing in outer suburbs doesn't have the same support systems in place. Uh, public transport, um, community services. Uh, m most of our engagement here is people who will walk from their homes. Uh, if you're moving people out of their communities to, uh, to areas that all of the services that they would want to access is by, via car, you might be creating larger problems. Some people don't drive, some people are elderly and they can't drive. Um, so uh, all of these issues are, are feeding into what happens when you take someone out of their home and you expect them to fend for themselves in those new communities without those support services. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. I really appreciate it. We just heard a conversation between Spike Priya and Christopher Sprake, community development worker at the Wellington, a community organisation that services the Wellington Street Public Housing Tower. Chris was able to briefly speak about the public housing redevelopment announcement from a community worker perspective, noting the lack of information provided to both residents and workers by the Victorian government either before or immediately after the Victoria's housing statement was made public. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. <laughs>
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And now we'll be joined by Louisa Bassini, Acting Director of Legal Practice at Internet Melbourne Community Legal. And she joins us to speak about the implications of the Victorian government's public housing development redevelopment plan from a community legal sector perspective and shares some information about the rights of public tenants. Inner Melbourne Community Legal is a service that represents clients on the North Melbourne, Flemington, Kensington and Carlton public housing estates. Louisa previously represented clients being relocated from the Abbotshood Street and Walker Street estates as part of the public housing renewal program and has worked on housing and tenants' rights issues for about 15 years. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Louisa. Hi, Inez. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, Well, I wanted to start off, you know, as, you know, Inner Community Legal's Acting Director of Legal Practice, could you tell us more about how this announcement is a continuation of the destruction of public housing that we've seen in recent years, particularly, you know, following the COVID lockdowns and the ongoing neglect of the safety and sustainability of these homes? Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, it's quite a shock, I guess, coming out of the hard lockdowns and still trying to get some justice for the public housing residents who experienced that, for us to now be faced with this um, huge announcement by the government. But in other ways, it's not a surprise at all because it is really um, a continuation of what they tested, I think, with the public housing renewal program, which occurred on estates like Abbotsford Street, which is in our catchment, <coughs> and which hasn't even really been completed yet. We haven't seen any positive um, outcomes from that. Um you know, it's obviously the case that the, the towers are, you know, in a really poor condition when we seek repairs for clients. Um, we have the basic maintenance done quite easily, but whenever you need something more substantial, like the replacement of kitchen cabinets, for instance, there's really been some pushback on that for a number of years. Um, and, you know, we were told with the Carlton Towers that there would be... Um, that, that, that they were being refurbished and that our clients were would be moved back into those buildings, but we've been... Surprised now, I guess, with this announcement that, that that wasn't ever really the plan and that they're all um, coming down if the government has its way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such an important point to remember is that, yeah, this has been ongoing for a while and the government just wants to, you know, have its way. And it, I, I also know that they've used terms like social housing and community housing kind of interchangeably in its announcement which really has created confusion among residents. Um, and, yeah, because there is such a difference. Could you tell us more about what the differences are and why it's important not to use them interchangeably? Yeah, I think that the term social housing, to, to refer to both public and community housing, was um, definitely a conscious choice by government because it has allowed for this privatisation to occur by stealth, really. Um, you know, we, we were reprimanded again and again for using the word privatisation around the public housing renewal program when it's exactly what's happening, really. Um, so <clears throat> community housing organisations, you know, they might say, well, these aren't profit for profit organisations, um, you know, and they're, they're in the interest of people, they're housing people or whatever, but 
not really what we're concerned with. We, we're, from a legal perspective, we're looking at what rights um, people have living in their homes and it's just simply not the case that community housing organisations afford the same rights to renters. So, for instance, you know, you have to pay a little bit more, up to 30% of your income. Often community housing providers uh, will, will pass on a service charge that can be quite a, a lot of money, you know, $50 a week. Um, so there's the expense. There's things like uh, refusing to make modifications for dis to accommodate disabilities. Um, you know, a whole raft of things where it's simply better to be a public housing tenant. And because of the fact that community housing organisations are quite often, you know, small, they don't um, manage the extent of housing stock that, that um, the government does as a landlord, it can mean that when people want to leave, they decide that they can't deal with that house anymore and they want to transfer. They're really stuck because they can't seek a transfer um, in the way that someone who was a public tenant was able to, um, you know, talk to the government as a landlord and arrange for that kind of a swap or um, relocation to occur. Community housing organisations also, I think, just simply don't have the same accountability as government, um, so we, we can't hold them to the same standards. They're not regulated in the same way. And we don't know whether they're going to be there in another five or ten years. You know, these are often organisations that don't have... Um, you know, they're not regulated as they should be. Um, they've only been around for a short while. And for someone to think, OK, I, this, I can make this my home forever, really is compromised by the fact that their rental provider is just this um, small start-up that might not continue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, and we've spoken to, you know, residents earlier in this program today, and I think, you know, touching on the fact that you can't make disability accommodations, um, you don't, you're, you're not allowed to really, like, really fight for what is a right for renters. Um, and I think that it's so disappointing. Um, and I know that, you, you know, given the fact that you've worked in the sector for, you know, around 15 years, um, I'm interested to know about the fact that there's been notices that were going up already once the announcement has hap had happened. Um, and it gave no real clear time frame or details about the relocation of residents, renewal of these sites, the right to return when the rebuild is completed. And I know you've also um, been representing clients when they've relocated as well. So I'm wondering, you know, what's happening here? Could you talk a little bit more about, you know, sending out notices, how this is all even happening? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there are a lot of residents really... Uh, outraged by the fact that they were, you know, there just handing out these kind of uh, meaningless notices that just had a QR code to talking about fluff, really, and handing them out with chocolate, you know, was really quite insulting, I think, the way that the announcement came through. In a lot of ways, the government can't explain what is going to happen because it doesn't know. It will um, relocate households in an ad hoc way, depending on what becomes available um, in other suburbs and so forth. I mean, we do know to, that some of their plans are more firmly, which is that they intend to relocate Carlton residents to the redeveloped Carlton Towers, which are already empty. So there's, uh, you know, it's less of a process. I think they want to start with the more simple and uh, easy wins, um, so to speak, uh, in terms of carrying out this policy. Uh, the the Alfred Street building in North Melbourne will be the first to be redeveloped um, on that estate, and those people will be moved into the Abbotsford Street estate. But these 
We don't know yet whether um, who will return from the people who were evicted from Abbotsford Street. Um, they will. They were assured that right um, in a way that that renters now haven't actually. Um, but it's really going to be a process of um, they'll offer houses as much as they can to people, and I think they want this process to work. So they'll uh, do their best, especially at the start, to relocate people um, with their cooperation and consent. But as it rolls on, um, and this is what we saw with the public housing renewal program, you know, they simply ran out of stock. They ran out of places to put people. And we're already in the midst of a housing crisis. So the options that people are presented with will become more and more limited, um, less attractive. And, you know, in the case of um, one of my clients who has agreed to let me speak about her story, she was moved from um, <coughs> Abbotsford Street, uh, sorry, the Walker Street estate in Northcote, where her kids went to school locally and, and walked there and so forth, out to Reservoir. Um, she, she didn't drive at the time and she had to then um, adjust to that. And it's been, you know, years and years now since that estate was emptied out, uh, you know, probably like coming up to five years, I think. Um, and it's still not even started being rebuilt. So even when the government puts timelines on it and says, you know, 2031 is when all the towers will be uh, finished by uh, I, I simply don't trust that, and I think that the you know those years of dislocation really are hard to measure in terms of what you can retain from that. I think you know a lot of people just choose not to return to the estates because they've already settled elsewhere because they've been there for so long where they've been relocated to. Yeah, it's so clear that the government doesn't have a very good track record, and you know as you've mentioned, the um, the client that you're working with has had to disconnect from family or not family sorry um like a location or their community and then to know how much it has been delayed people are not given agency and choice in decisions that continuously affect them on top of you know residents that aren't well maintained as well um what you know from from a legal perspective um how do you get this through (laughs) without no you know no input from residents what and also, what are the legal rights that residents have? Mm. Well, there there aren't many, I'm afraid. Like it's it's the case that the government can really do what it likes with um, its infrastructure, like this, in a lot of ways. So the renting laws um, under the Residential Tenancies Act don't really help um, tenants in this in this instance. Um, the government does have an obligation to make decisions that are consistent with. Um, the human rights that people have under the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act. Um, but that, it's really limited legal protection. Like I, I think that it will, there will certainly be a legal challenge and we'll look at how we can do that in um, a, a range of different ways. And I think if clients come to us and they really want to challenge it, we're there for them and we will do that. But um, it's... Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about government and a government project where they really can just steamroll through this. Um but, you know, the the question of consultation, I think um, it's, it's important to note that, yeah, they, they don't really care what's happening to these individual people, families, communities on the ground. I mean, that was evident with the hard lockdown, really, yeah. in, in North Melbourne. But, um, yeah, like, I think that, uh, that you know, it, it's got to be more than just um, a kind of tokenistic consultation because with the public housing renewal program, like, we sat through 
countless number of consultations that really meant nothing. They'd already made their decisions. Um, you know, we didn't need to hear from private developers talking to us about how, how good it was going to be. Um, so, you know, like, if they're going to have... They should have input, and, and if they're going to have input, it's got to be real input. But in many ways, that comes about through people challenging them and, and um, you know, sticking up for themselves and protesting because I think that's a real input as opposed to the... Um, the kind of routine consultations that we get from government these days. Yeah, absolutely. Ellen, I, it's, it's so important that you mentioned not being tokenistic. Um, and, yeah, so clearly from residents that we've spoken to, our other interviews and what you're saying now, people are removed from their communities, their places that they've built their lives and are expected to just have no choice and, like, kind of just put up with it for an indefinite period of time. I, I think it's genuinely it, – it's awful and – disgusting um and i'm wondering as well what can our listeners do what can residents do um yeah because i know that I, i'm sure that the inner community Melbourne legal is going to be you know very busy and yeah how can how can people stand up for themselves get support um and what can we do as people who maybe don't live in the public housing residence yeah, I mean, well, for people who are public housing residents, we want them to contact us um, and so that we can offer that legal help uh, yeah. in whatever shape it takes. But I think that the like legal challenges are never never occur in isolation. Like when there's a campaign or a movement behind them, they're more likely to be successful. Um, and I think that um, you know, there's obviously people organising um, against this announcement. I know that there's a, a group that did great work with the public housing renewal program or opposing it called the Save Public Housing Collective and I know that they are organising protests and so forth so I think you know by all means people should get involved in that public housing is not just about um, it's not just something for, for people who live in it to be interested in this is yep. about the shape that our city takes it's about um, you know whether we can actually deal with a housing crisis that affects us all and it's about what kind of um, you know, working class and low-income communities we want to keep in the inner city. So this is something for all of us and we should be getting involved in whatever way we can. Yeah, absolutely. This is something for all of us and these are people in our communities and everybody deserves the right to safe and sustainable and ongoing housing and rights as a tenant. So um, thank you so much, Louisa, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it and we'll all put the details for... Um, the legal centre and advice on how to contact if you need. But hope you have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ina. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye. That was Louisa Pacini, the Acting Director of Legal Practice at Inner Melbourne Community Legal. And she joins us to, to speak about the implications of the Public Housing Tower redevelopment plan from a community legal sector perspective and shared some information about the rights of public tenants. Um, they also represent clients of North Melbourne, Flemington, Kensington and Carlton Public Housing Estates and has worked in the sector for over 15 years. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It's currently 8.03. The state government has sold 578 hectares of public land to private developers. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. 
and we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. All right, and we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And right now we are joined by my colleagues, uh, including my boss, uh, Professor Libby Porter and Dr. David Kelly, who are housing researchers based at RMIT Center for Urban Research, to talk about the Victorian government's public housing tower redevelopment plan and situate it within a longer history of scholarship and independent evaluations of previous processes of public housing renewal in Melbourne, and they present a critical analysis of the process and its impact on public housing estate communities, the rollback of government provision of housing, and the ripple effects in the broader landscape of tenancy in the state. Uh, now, Libby, Dave, myself, and our colleagues, Dr. Iris Levin, Dr. Liam Davies, and Professor Kate Shaw published an explainer breaking down last week's Victoria's housing statement, and we will have links to that in our show notes. But that is going to be, I guess, the main thing that we draw on to open up this conversation. So good morning, Libby and Dave. Good morning, Priya. Lovely to be with you. Morning. How are you going? Uh, It's so nice to have you both in the station Um, and bringing you into my world. Um, So (laughs) I thought maybe we could start off by talking a bit about the history of research that you've both done on previous public housing redevelopment projects, because I know that you've been involved in both research and campaigning to save public housing around places like Walker Street and Ascot Vale. And um, obviously those did not really go to the plan, uh, the black letter plan that government put out. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned from those previous redevelopment projects? Come on, Dave, over to you. You start. What have we learned? Um... Well, from a policy perspective, they learned quite a lot. They've learned how to sidestep our critiques in terms of the research. What we've learned from a research perspective is um, not not much because the international evidence is there like and has been there for quite a long time. So it's not as if we're reinventing the wheel here and saying displacement hurts people and redevelopment projects are bad value for money and PPPs are disastrous for the public purse and all that sort of stuff. That's all very well established. So what we've been doing is trying to situate that in a very local Australian Melbourne arm context. So, yes, we, like, I mean, we've learned that there's no limits to the government's kind of banal evilness in their policies sometimes. Um, but, like I said, the evidence is there. We've known it for quite a while that these are very harmful policies. Mm. Yeah, maybe to add to that, I think that's a really good point because um, I don't think we have added anything, if you like, I'm going to use air quotes here for radio, new, um, about uh, the impacts of of displacement and so on because, as David just said, 
these things are well established and well known, um, so we're merely adding another story uh, to that evidence base. Um, I think maybe from my own perspective, uh, what I've learned is just how violent um, the bureaucratic process is uh, and watching that um, and, and trying to, I guess, sort of capture that in a way that can you can talk about it to a wider audience um, has been quite a process and I think that's an, a really essential part of our research, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think there's really something to be said there about not just, you know, when... Um, when the broader public, uh, people that might not be familiar with the ins and outs of public housing, when there's discussion about public housing, there is an assumption of uh, pre-existing vulnerability and incapacity uh, among public housing residents by virtue of them living in state-provided housing uh, that is that has a capped cost, um, all that kind of thing. But actually, you know, I think a lot of what you've explored in your research and, and what we're trying to um, reveal through the work we're doing together now is how the act of policy interventions through public housing renewal produce vulnerability um, in a way that, you know, they, they, they really create harm. Um, did you want to speak to that? Mm-hmm. Well said, Priya. That's completely right. Um, and, and that's why you're on the team, both here at 3CR and on the research team. Um, the, the way in which these um, processes play out and that violence of the bureaucracy that I was just speaking about um, uh, operate is that they, um, they fracture communities which are already strong and... and um, to use that awful term, resilient and all those things. Um, and and what they do is they undo that that very thing that is the uh, supposed aim of government in all its sort of motherhood policies and statements about you know, creating better societies and all that kind of stuff. So they... And that's part of the violence that I'm talking about. There's the violence to the individual people and to the social fabric, if you like. Um, but there's also this kind of violence of pretending that you're doing something um, that is supposedly, you know, from a good place and and beneficial to society. And it's deeply, deeply harmful um, and destroys the very things that uh, supposedly we hold up as as social values. Mm. That, um, the, the moral argument, I think, bothers me more than most things that they say, um, because it echoes back to a lot of colonial imperial narratives around doing things for the betterment of impoverished communities Uh, we've seen it in the northern territory intervention we've seen it in the community closures in wa we see it in renewal programs all around the country where the government come in as as this paternalistic moralistic force that says we know what's best and because we're your landlord we can do what we want yeah. It's this language of social improvement that mm. is so insidious, um, where the government wants to sidestep explicitly saying, you know, things like ghetto. Um, but the way that they are treating communities is as if they, you know, when they talk about the dispersal of public housing communities as an inherent good um, and, and spreading people out, um, peppered in within uh, private rental tenancies and, and ownership, um, you know, models, uh it really, it really seems like there's, uh, like an intentional social dispersal there that 
that sits really uncomfortably when you, you know, start looking at it a bit more past the, you know, we want to improve things for residents, we're retiring the towers. And I think this also sits alongside um, a very technocratic language of public-private partnerships and um, this language of innovation about new types of model, mixed tenure models. Um, can you tell us a bit about that spin, about, you know, the Victorian government's approach to public-private partnerships in the provision of, quote, social housing, which is not the same as public housing, and things like the ground lease model, which um, I'm sure people have heard about but might not really be familiar with the ins and outs of? Mm. Um, just before we get right into that, I uh, just want to make a comment about the the sort of patronising way in which these happen and the sort of moralising discourse because it links directly to the, the mixed tenure um, component of these programs that you just mentioned, Priya, and, and that's uh, the sort of idea of social mix. And, and certainly our research has found um, at the at the previous um, iteration of this program, the Public Housing Renewal Program, um, and in the wider international evidence as well, this is very clear, that social mix is, is a kind of used as a sort of Trojan horse, for, essentially for... Um, ethnic cleansing um, and for um, rampant gentrification that's state-induced. So, so basically you use an argument to say we must disperse you know, poor, impoverished communities because they're clearly disadvantaged and no good can come from that um, and then use that as a sort of battering ram to push through and, and in fact do that thing of dispersing those, um, those communities. Um, what has always interested me, there's a very large literature uh, in the um, sort of urban geographical uh, space uh, that talks about um, social mix and a sort of neighbourhood disadvantage and it has always fascinated me that no one ever talks about um, concentrations of wealth um, and, and ensuring that we disperse concentrations of wealth. So no one's ever um, dispersing rich communities in, you know, Turak. Mm. Dare I say that on air? Yeah, they just uh, gate them up. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. And they have, one of one person who's a good friend who was relocated from the Walker Street estate, who you all know, um, came up with this line, which is so perfect that the social mix idea is basically rooted in this idea of trickle down socioeconomics, mm. where the idea that as a poor person you might. Um, experience this kind of role modeling effect by being in proximity to wealthier white people. And that's kind of at the root of the social mix idea that you would somehow get better advantages in life by just being near rich people. Mm, yeah, it's uh, this notion of bootstrapping by proximity, which is mm. a, like a false premise already, the idea of bootstrapping. It's like, you know, there are so many different reasons why people quote-unquote succeed uh, in society but then to say that that's something that can be more broadly achieved by uh, integrating by assimilating um, people who have been structurally disadvantaged Mm. um, you know racially socioeconomically all of those things um, through having mixed tenure properties I think is um yeah, I mean, it, it really is the sort of thing where I wonder, is there, is there evidence, is there an evidence base to show that this is already raising concerns from the people that are being forcibly assimilated into this type of tenure? Um, because there is just so much government spin about the inherent good of this type of model. 
I think there's. Um, I think we could all agree that living in diverse and you know richly textured places is a good thing. Um, I, I, that's the kind of place I want to live in. Um, so I want to live in a place where lots of people, different people, are around me and part of my life. Um, and I'm sure other people are the same. Um, but uh, there's no evidence that suggests that this kind of model actually produces um, social mixing, so to, so to speak, mm. um, and in fact quite the opposite, that people don't mix uh, be- mm. because there's all sorts of barriers and, and, and those, those things. Yeah, and, and these communities are precisely in within a diverse urban mm. geographic landscape. Already. Like, mm. They're already in a socially mixed neighbourhood. So take the Carlton Estate, and like it's surrounded by... A mixture of different people from different backgrounds, lots of students, um, lots of young people, um, lots of ethnic migrants. And so it already exists. And so there's no real social argument for breaking up the community and then introducing more affluent tenures. Mm -hmm. At the Carlton Estate in particular, it was found after the evaluation study that there was immense segregation between the tenures mm-hmm. that there were different doors for different people and oh my gosh. it came in, in the report it even called one of the doors the poor door because there was private gardens um segregated or um common space in quotations so that mixing didn't happen it just re- it just what it does is it keeps the concentration of tenures, but what it does is parcel them into a smaller area. So it just squeezes people into tighter mm. spaces um, and really doesn't have the effect that it says it should. Actually, squeezing people into tighter spaces comes back to that question about the nature of redevelopments on these sites. Um, and maybe we can talk a bit about the sort of composition that's proposed, but um, I want to come back to that. Um, public-private mm. partnership model and the and the ground lease model discussion as well to talk about you know what is actually being proposed before then we kind of unpack uh, how feasible it is. So uh, the the model that is proposed is that the, uh, the under the PHRP the public housing renewal program and the big housing build and what has just been proposed last week uh, it, as far as we can tell from the scant information that's been released. Um, is that the public housing estates will be redeveloped in a public-private partnership. So essentially the government says um, either either they will sell the land, um, as they have done in the past, to a private development consortium um, and redevelop uh, a public housing site with uh, a mix of private and community housing dwellings. So it's effectively a full privatisation um, in, in, in different ways, um, through different mechanisms. The, the, what was announced last week um, and what has occurred through the big housing build was a slight shift as a form that um, Dave mentioned earlier is a kind of trying to skirt around the critique of selling the land and instead use what's called the ground lease model that you mentioned before, Priya. And that model is where the, the ground is leased to um, a private consortium. And so instead of the land being actually sold, it's leased for 40 years to, again, a consortium of some kind, um, usually with a community housing organisation inside that consortium or indeed leading potentially that consortium. Um, and they're the, they're the group that redevelop the site, um, again, with a mix of, of community housing dwellings and, and lots more private, um, pri- private market um, dwellings. 
So what we see, and, and then at the end of 40 years, uh, the government can um, take back the, the land and assets, if you want to use that language, um, or potentially could renew the lease. So there could be perpetual l- leases um, without, uh, so it's a kind of privatisation, but holding, actually still holding the asset. It's a very strange mm. form of, um, of privatisation, but is nonetheless uh, that. It's an extremely costly model. Um, mm. Dave, yeah. I don't know whether you want to speak to that. Yeah, um, so for Barrack Beacon in particular, which is in Port Melbourne, we, I'll preface this by saying we're not accountants, but our back of the napkin figures suggest that it will cost at least $1.1 billion over the 40 years. That's the cost to the public purse, not discounting the fact that the community housing provider who will come and operate the site will operate their community housing on the site, which is taken from the Victorian Housing Register, tenants are taken from there. Then the affordable housing component, which is very amorphous and we don't really know what that means, but then a massive private market share of the dwellings on the site. So what they'll do is collect market rent. So they'll be essentially become a big corporate private landlord who then also manage a bit of social housing on the site. So they're extracting profit in multiple ways. It's through the 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 rents coming from social, affordable, and market rental, but then they're also collecting what they call quarterly service payments, which is the cost to the government, us, in a way, in a sense, um, for delivering the service of the social housing dwellings. So that's going to cost um, $1.1 billion over 40 years. Yeah, it seems like a immensely convoluted way to avoid providing uh, public housing directly by the state government. Um, well, this is what we see yeah. all the time is, is um, the invention of kind of tricky, slippery financial models um, instead of just, you know, doing what we say we should do. Uh, I, I think it's really important to um, point out, you know, the idea of the ground lease model. Normally in a lease, if you own a thing and you lease it out, someone pays you for the service of the thing. Um, and, and instead, this is the other way around, right? So... The, the ground is is leased um, to the private consortium, but the government, as the owner, pays yeah. that consortium for the, their privilege of using the, the ground. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there just needs to be so much more transparency around how these models work and... Um, I guess unpacking for a broader public audience who might not be super familiar with these models, the the idea that, you know, government's paying for the privilege of having a community housing organization in um, combination with a private developer run these at a profit to themselves. Um, I think we might move on to, uh, Dave, you mentioned the Victorian Housing Register and um, you know, with the state government choosing to demolish old stock rather than refurbish or add to existing stock, what does this mean for people waiting on the public housing waitlist in the homeless community? I haven't yet seen a full analysis, but at the same time, we kind of know. So the Victorian Housing Register is growing by 1,500 applicants every three months. The If that continues to grow at that pace, and it will probably grow at a faster pace, and, of course, eligibility for the Victorian Housing Register will even outpace that growth, but people just don't register, so the need will always be growing. Um, If it continues at that pace, we'll be in a worse housing crisis in 10 years than we are now because the let's take the Carlton Towers that are being redeveloped here on Elgin Street and Nicholson, the corner there. That will take 10 years to come online and and re-tenanted. Ten years whilst losing that stock, whilst buying up stock in the private sector for, for private rental, um, sorry, acquiring private rentals in order to put 
the displaced people and households into. Um, all it does is just reduce the capacity for us to house people in the short to medium term. So it's just going to balloon out for the next 10 years and we will be in a worse state. So the kind of time frame for net benefit is really protracted because mm. of this renewal program. Yeah, and actually I also wanted to come back to, to the question of refurbishment and, and feasibility because I know we've got limited time, but I wanted to, to ask that question, um, you know, for the benefit of our listeners about uh, the lack of transparency in relation to saying that the towers and they, uh, you know, governments use the term retiring, that the towers need to be retired. Um, so first of all, um, do you know of any refurbishment or, uh, you know, a, canvassing of, of refurbishment options of alternatives to demolition that have been explored by the state government, you know, feasibility studies around that that have been commissioned by government to actually prove this. Um, and yeah, could, could you speak to that? Well, I don't think there's been anything released. Um, we have certainly asked for that to be released, but and multiple people are asking for more information about uh, what the what the criteria are that sit behind the decisions that have been made. Uh, and please release um, Homes Victoria the analysis of those towers to show how they can, why they can't be refurbished, um, and and what is going on there. Um, so the assumption I think should be that there might be other options and alternatives available that might be less costly. And um, we've certainly seen good uh, work done by the team at Office um, at Barrack Beacon and Ascot Vale about that. Um, the towers are, of course, a different um, setup in terms of their physical structure, but um, surely there are there are options. Um, I think the other point to be made about the question about refurbishment that often gets lost uh, in these conversations is to remain vigilant about on whose watch these uh, public housing estates and, and the, pub, the quality of public housing dwellings just generally, um, on whose watch they have been left to uh, be in such a state of disrepair that we now have to demolish them. So let's keep that front of mind uh, as well. Mm. In terms of like justifying the case for renewal, um, the public housing renewal program, uh, when that was first incepted, was really justified on the basis of a report that came out from a consultancy called M21 Advisory. Um, and it was a commercial assessment of all the public housing walk-ups and basically they just picked, using in quotes what their terminology was, a real estate model of renewal where they were looking for high-value estates. So when they were going in and looking for estates to redevelop, they weren't looking for the ones that were in the biggest state of disrepair or the ones that had you know, any sort of issues socially or spatially or whatever what they were looking for was what is the highest that value that we can extract for, and um and that's why you have like walker street estate which is on the merry creek and you have abbotsford street estate which is like in the heart of north melbourne all these high value estates barrack beacon on the bay so that's why that's how they choose that brings me back to the first towers that have been announced for redevelopment first of all you both have written about this. You wrote about it at the time, um, about the hard lockdowns during COVID that affected, uh, you know, the highly racialized and highly racially surveilled and targeted communities in the North Melbourne and Flemington Towers. But we also know that that is now prime real estate um, in those locations where those first towers for targeting, uh, which house very large uh, African communities from a variety of different um, countries and also um, 
overlap with a large Muslim community as well. We know that Amsa Mosque is in North Melbourne that services a lot of the community there. Um, and it's got, you know, that that demographic component converging with the value of the land. So maybe just to wrap up, I was wondering if you could speak to, I don't know, any thoughts on, on the decision to start there? Well, I think, it, as you say, Priya, it comes from a, a long history of um, surveillance and, and racialised policing and, and um, racialised relations uh, here in the colony. Um, and it will uh, res- result, I think, in... Um, you know, not well, not not only the gentrification, the gentrification, but of, of course, you know, gentrification is not only a class cleansing, but is always racialized. Um, so it is a just another round of uh, the whitening of urban space um, in this in in Melbourne, in the city, um, which has been a project underway since invasion. Mm-hmm. The the towers in particular like would constitute what fifteen to twenty percent of the public housing stock in Victoria. Why they would start there is I think the elephant in the room um, and they need to be asked quite seriously yeah. it's like why here because public housing in general is is a diverse tenure, but the towers are highly racialized horn lots of horn of African migrants, ethnic migrants, mm. um particularly in Flemington so Yeah. um, So to conclude that interview, uh, Homes Victoria and Department of Families, Fairness and Housing, show us your receipts, babe. We're waiting. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Thank you, Libby and Dave. Thank you. Thank you. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.